Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. This is the Falcoholic Podcast, the official podcast of the Atlanta Falcons on the SB Nation Podcast Network. This is Dave Walker, and on today's episode, we're going to talk about one of the coaches that did not get fired alongside Dan Quinn and general manager Thomas Dimitrov. He's also arguably one of the coaches fans despise the most right now. I am, of course, talking about offensive coordinator Dirk Cutter. My guest is Aaron Freeman of the Locked On Falcons podcast, and we're going to talk about Cutter today. Aaron, thanks for joining me. Always looking forward to an opportunity to slander Dirk Cutter. <laughs> oh, I am too, and I think, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be ready to hear this. Um, I want to start off with who Dirk Cutter is, where you know, we know him from. Obviously, this is not his first foray in Atlanta. Uh, and I want to just revisit that so that fans who maybe are a little bit more, uh, you know, disconnected from the team uh, will understand where we're coming from. So, obviously, he was the uh, offensive coordinator for the Falcons between 2012-2014. Um, Aaron, looking back, what, what do you think were some of the defining characteristics of his offense in, in those three years that he was with the Falcons under Mike Smith? Yeah, you know, his offense is – you know, his bread and butter play, you could call it is the four verts, four verticals concept where he likes to send his wide receivers and his tight ends often, you know, three wide receivers and, and one tight end out there uh, to run sort of vertical routes. And that play is, is very useful, particularly against cover three, which we know is the most popular coverage in the NFL because um, it really puts that single high safety in the conflict over, you know, sort of which uh, – middle route that he can cover. Um, so it's, it's a very effective play. Uh, beyond that, there's not sort of any sort of signature to sort of Dirk Cutter's offense in the way that you see it. For example, if we're comparing him to Kyle Shanahan's offense, which sure. features a lot of sort of outside zone running scheme, and then they sort of build a lot of play action passing off of that outside zone running scheme as sort of their foundation. So it's just kind of Dirk Cutter's, you know, foundation is I like four verts. Um, you know, the way that Dirk Cutter uses it, typically that is, is considered vertical passing. And typically when people hear that term vertical passing, they think, oh, we're taking shots down the field. But the way Dirk Cutter often liked to use it, particularly in the past and still somewhat to this day, but not quite to the degree, was that he would, if it was like a first and 10 or a third and seven, he would have his receivers run vertical routes and then they would run to the sticks and turn around and, you know, wait for Matt Ryan to throw them the ball. And if they were open, Matt Ryan would throw them the ball. If they weren't open, then Matt Ryan wouldn't throw them the ball and, and so on and so forth. And um, with Derek Cutter's offense, it, it, it tends to be because of that a lot more dink and dunk than this sort of truly we're going to stretch your defense vertically type of offense. And it was very efficient in those early years, particularly in 2012 with Julio Jones and Roddy White and Tony Gonzalez. I remember back in the day writing that those three guys, when you looked at expected points added, 
um, which has now become a lot more popular, but was sort of just getting off the ground back then as mm-hmm. a sort of advanced metric. Those three guys were all like in the top 10 in terms of expected point points added as uh, receivers in the league that year. And I know up to that point, like the only offense that was comparable to them that had three receivers that were that highly rated was the 2008 Arizona Cardinals offense, which went on to go to the Super Bowl with Kurt Warner at quarterback, Anquan Bolden, Larry Fitzgerald, and Steve Breston being their three guys. And that was sort of what the Falcons featured with Gonzo, Warati, and Julio Jones. Mm -hmm. And then – sort of the quick summary of sort of what happened after that is once you had injuries to Julio and Roddy the following year, your offense didn't really function because so much of it was based off of, Hey, Tony, get open, you know, right. Hey, Roddy, get open, Julio, get open. And those Harry guys, Douglas, particularly, yeah. yeah, those three guys, when they were able to do that highly effectively in 2012, it was a very effective offense. You didn't have those guys doing that in 2013 due to injuries. Primarily you didn't really have that in 2014 with Tony Gonzalez's retirement, Roddy White still dealing with injuries, still playing, but wasn't quite the same player that he was. Harry Douglas was beat up that year. And so you saw the Falcons offense, particularly in 2014, just basically entirely funnel itself through Julio Jones. And I'm sure as you listeners well know that this Falcons offense, despite how great Julio Jones is, becomes a lot easier to defend if it's basically the Julio Jones show and, and no one else is, is making plays in the Falcons offense becomes pretty average at that point in time. And sort of that was the thing that they kind of needed to fix. And we've seen in subsequent years since then, years when they've had those playmakers outside of Julio Jones, the offense has worked. Years when they didn't quite have that, not so much. So I think that's the long-winded summary of sort of what Dirk Cutter's offense is really about. And I noticed in, in that summary, one of the things you did not mention was any kind of running game. And I think that is a criticism that has followed him, not just in Atlanta. I think it, it followed him to Tampa Bay, where they also failed to establish a running game. Some would argue that uh, when he took over in 2012, you know, Michael Turner was still here. He was not the running back that he used to be uh, in his early years with Atlanta. Um, you know, when he went to Tampa, they never had a, a big name back. Uh, even Steven Jackson was in the, you know, the twilight of his career. Uh, do you think that that is a fair criticism that he's never actually had a really good running back? Or do you think that has more to do with Cutter's preferences or just his inability to call a consistent running game? It's, a, it's a, all of the above to a certain extent. I, I think some of that is, is mostly true. I think you go back to his days in Jacksonville when he was working with Jack Del Rio and Mike Smith was the defensive coordinator there. They had a great running game. They had Fred Taylor early on. It continued with Maurice Jones-Drew. They right. ran the offense through MJD. Some of that was owed to how good a player MJD was. Some of that was owed to the fact that they didn't have great quarterback play during those years with guys like Byron Leftwich and David Garrard. They didn't have really effective weapons. You know, that was a real big issue for Jacksonville for many years where they had some of the worst wide receivers in the NFL, uh, having guys like Ernest Wilford and Matt Jones and <laughs> who, who I can't even remember some of these guys um, that they had. And so as a function of sort of what they needed to do in order to be an effective offense, they were a run first team. Mm-hmm. The thing with Dirk Cutter and the one thing you can say about Dirk Cutter that was positive, particularly in 2012, was one of the things that held back the Falcons offense in 2011 was because Michael Turner, despite his production, wasn't the same guy that could sort of be the lead tailback in a Falcons offense. We saw that really come to fruition in that Giants playoff game where the Falcons were like, we're going to pound the ball down the Giants throat and, you know, we're going to be physical with them and that's going to 
neutralize that pass rush and we're going to win the game on the, on the legs and thighs of Michael Turner. That was not, that did not prove to be the case. They really struggled to adapt with Julio Jones in the offense to being more of a balanced pass centric offense. Cause that's really where their bread should have been buttered in 2011. That mm-hmm. led to Malarkey's dismissal. Here comes Dirk Cutter, who is all about bringing in a sort of pass centric pass first offense and was effective doing that in 2012. But, without the running game to rely on. And as we talked about earlier, without having the weapons to make that pass first offense effective, you saw it decline in 2013, 2014. Then he goes to Tampa Bay as the offensive coordinator there. And in that first year, I can't remember the first or second year, they still had Doug Martin there in Tampa Bay. And Doug Martin was really effective in one of those years and was healthy and played well. And Mm -hmm. he was kind of the focus of the offense because in part due to Jameis Winston being a rookie quarterback and not necessarily wanting to throw him to the wolves and sort of force him to have to throw the ball, you know, 30, 40 times, like we saw early in Cam Newton's career where Mm -hmm. they were just throwing the ball all the time constantly. And they were losing a lot of games because that's not the offense that you want to build around that type of quarterback. You want to sort of balance, you know, that's what the Falcons did with Matt Ryan. It's not a knock on those guys. It's just like you run, you know, Russell Wilson, young quarterbacks need running games to sort of take pressure off of them to have to sort of spearhead the offense. So then Doug Martin sort of left or got hurt or whatever the case may be. And you saw the box run game, you know, just kind of completely evaporate. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, to, I guess, reiterate what you were asking, he, yeah, he's not about the run game. That's not really what he does well. And, you know, one of the things that Dan Quinn wanted to do is, is sort of, bringing back that Kyle Shanahan offense where the run game is a central part of the offense. Cause as I said, you know, it's about, you know, we're going to run this outside zone wide zone scheme. And when you look at the plays, when you're a defensive player that's reading his keys and you're looking at the offensive lineman moving, uh, you know, laterally uh, on a sort of the stretch play that is sort of the bread and butter of the outside zone scheme, you're thinking, Oh, run, run, run. And then when they, quarterback pulls the ball out of the running backs, you know, pocket or whatever on the play action fake. And then he's doing that little bootleg and that rollout. That's sort of the bread and butter, you know, linebackers are on the opposite side of the field and you get these wide open windows uh, on the intermediate and and the vertical levels. And that leads to the big plays that play action passing is known for. And of course, you know, maybe I'm getting too far ahead of myself when I'm talking about things. (laughs) Dirk Cutter's favorite play action passing play is not a vertical play. It's a, let's throw the ball behind the line of scrimmage to a tight end on a screen pass. Oh. And that play has worked one time uh, in the last two years. It happened to work when Matt Ryan wasn't the quarterback uh, in the <laughs> Seattle game where Austin Uber had a 35 yard gain. And I think they've probably run it maybe 15 to 20 times in the other game since. And I think the most it's gotten is maybe like eight yards. And what's funny is watching the, Chargers uh, Saints game last night as we're recording this on Monday Night Football, you know, they ran it to, I can't remember the tight end, Virgil Green or somebody, and they got like 12 yards on it. I was like, why can't we do that? Like, you know, if you're going to run that play, at least let it work. But for whatever reason, it, it does not work when, when Dirk Cutter runs it. And he, boy, does he love running it. Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, I, I think there's something that sticks in my mind when Dirk Cutter was brought in uh, in the – in years of the time that Malarkey was here, it seemed like a lot of fans were complaining that the Falcons offense never ran any screens. They never ran any, uh, you know, any plays like that. And then Dirk comes in and I think that first Kansas city game, he was tossing them left and right, you know, the wide receiver screens and uh, 
and it was it was refreshing, but then it became sort of overkill where, mm-hmm. you know, 2013, 2014, it's like, oh, my God, stop running the freaking screens already. <laughs> so it was a lot of burnout from uh, those. And I think now that the tight end, uh, that, that short tight end screen is, is probably the one for us. Uh, I think we saw it actually on Sunday, uh, and I think it gained like yes. two yards. So <laughs> yeah, I don't even. I think that being generous, I think it's actually a loss of of, of two yards. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I think you're right. So uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's that's that usually way. what it's getting, like a loss of two yards. That's why it's so frustrating. And you know, we talk about this, and it's like it's not that screens are bad. It's just when you do like. You know, some teams are really good at screens. The Chiefs are like amazing at screen passes and they're very creative with their screen passes. And you see it all the time where, you know, it's not, it's, 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 this is kind of the core issue with Dirk Cutter. It's not that like the things that he's doing is inherently wrong. Like you can do a lot of the things that he likes to do and do it very well. It's just, he doesn't do them well, you know? (laughs) So it's just, you're just kind of stuck with like complaining about things. And it's like, I hate screen passes. And it's like, you shouldn't hate screen passes. Anybody who's a Falcon fan has watched other teams completely annihilate the Falcons on screenplays over the last, I don't know, 20 years, it seems like. And it's one of those things where it's like, why can't the Falcons do that? And, you know, I think a lot of it is kind of owed to the design that, you know, the sort of flawed inherent flaws of Dirk Cutter's offense. Yeah, and 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 that's one of the reasons why I have you on because I think there is, to your point, the plays in and of themselves are not the problem. Screens are not the problem. Uh, running on second and long is not the problem. Um, these, you know, there are other teams that do this with a tremendous amount of success. It just seems like when Dirk does it, it becomes maybe predictable, or the off or the defense sees it better than they do with the more creative offenses. Um, but before we go to that point, I do want to talk about. Obviously, after 2014, technically, Dirk was not fired. He was, uh, I think they said he was allowed to leave to pursue the um, offensive coordinator position in Tampa, which is probably, they were just being kind about the, <laughs> the, those mechanics. I think people were ready for everyone to get fired for the actual pink slip to come in. But um, So he went on to Tampa. The Falcons, instead of retaining you know, internal staff, um, you know, they went to uh, Kyle Shanahan uh, with uh, when Dan Quinn came in. We all know, you know, the two years he was here, the, the amount of success they had. But then after Shanahan left, uh, so the 2017 season, we brought in Steve Sarkeesian. Um, and, and I want to skip over Shanahan because we all know what that offense was like. We don't have to recap that. But I want to get the Sarkeesian because I feel like the two years he was here are often either misunderstood or not seen uh, maybe a hundred percent correctly. So when you think back of 2017, 2018 and what Sarkeesian did, uh, what are your thoughts in general? Because I, I, I saw something, I think it was uh, this weekend where they said it showed by PFF and, and take that for what you will. It's just one of the metrics that's out there, but they ranked the, the Falcons seventh and sixth in the two years that Sarkeesian was here as offensive coordinator, which I was a little surprised by, but then, you know, it, it got me thinking maybe maybe they weren't as bad or as good as some people thought. What, what's your take on Sarkeesian? Yeah, I was actually having this discussion the other night with someone who was very much in the boat of we definitely were right in firing Steve Sarkeesian after ah. the 2018 season. And I was basically like, 
I was on board with that because I think there were some definite flaws in Stark's offense mm-hmm. that continually got exposed, particularly late in seasons when the Falcons were play, facing teams like, I don't know, Philadelphia or, or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, and so I was ready to move on. But I think the thing with Sark, particularly in the first year he was here, a lot of it was him trying to do Shanahan things, but not really understanding how to mm-hmm. do Shanahan things, which is similar to kind of what we've experienced under Dirk the last couple of years. Um, the, the Falcons offense overall was efficient. It struggled in the red zone. Um, they So they didn't score as many points as they probably should have, uh, given how many opportunities they were able to move the ball down the field. They struggled get, generating explosive plays, which was a regular feature of the Shanahan-style offense. Um, and they really, you know, part of that is owed to Matt Ryan missing a lot of deep throws early in the season. And then a lot of that was just basically because Sark didn't do a great job designing explosive plays. A lot of their big plays that they were able to get were mostly just like, oh, throw the ball. Like I think was it the Rams game where they threw that screen to Muhammad Sanu and then he like <laughs> broke a tackle and ran 50 yards. It was just kind of like, oh, just go out there and make a play. Similar yeah. to what we're, we're talking about with Dirk Cutter's offense, where it was just like, hey, go out there and get open. But then I think in 2018, the transition was that the Falcons passing game made major strides in large part due to the emergence of a player like Calvin Ridley. And going back to the point I made earlier where they were able to find someone else who could make plays outside of Julio Jones, which right. I think was too often an issue in 2017, where Mohamed Sanu was productive that year, but he was not a playmaker. Uh, Taylor Gabriel was basically an afterthought that season. A lot of those missed deep mm-hmm. passes to, um, that Matt Ryan had were targeted to Taylor Gabriel and you know, I think Matt Ryan went 0 for 8, and then basically after, like, week 10 or week 11, he just basically stopped throwing to Taylor Gabriel altogether. Um, and, you know, in 2018, Sark's offense started to do the things that you wanted to see from a, quote-unquote, Shanahan-style offense. And that worked for most of the season. You know, obviously their offense kind of hit the skids during that five-game losing streak in the back half of the season. And the main issue with Sark's offense, when we go back, when we talk about the running game, was in 2017, they were, you know, people often forget this because they look at the numbers and say, oh, Devontae Freeman only had like 800 and something yards or whatever. They were one of the better rushing teams in the NFL that year. They were very yeah. efficient running the outside zone scheme mm-hmm. as, you know, continuing that with, with from the Shanahan days. What happened, in my opinion, in 2018 was they went about adding pieces um, like Brandon Fusco, there were, I think, injuries to players like Andy Levitri, who were core elements of that outside zone scheme. And yep. for those people not familiar, the outside zone scheme, you know, what really makes that offense go is when you have interior offensive linemen particularly um, that are essentially, as I term them, heat-seeking missiles. They just sort of climb to the second level of the defense and just take out linebackers, which prevents those guys from pursuing, which opens back cut back lanes. And so what you get yep. is oftentimes – you know, they can turn into these eight to 12 or 15 or 20 yard gains, depending on the skill of the running back to locate those cutback lanes. Um, But it becomes a highly productive offense and running game. And you see, you know, you look at a player like Derrick Henry, um, who, you know, when Matt LaFleur brought the outside zone scheme to Tennessee in 2018, prior to that, Derrick Henry under Mike Malarkey wasn't, he was okay. He was fine. Like he wasn't bad or anything, but he was just kind of a middling sort of complimentary committee running backs playing carries with Deion Lewis. Then they bring the outside zone scheme, which, you know, fits Derrick Henry's skill set more so than the quote unquote exotic smash mouth that Malarkey brought. <laughs> and you see Derrick Henry essentially over the next two years become the best running back in the NFL. Right. Um, and that's sort of what the outside zone 
often does. You can go back 20 years when Mike Shanahan was doing it back in Denver, where it just seems like pretty much every running back that plays in that scheme sees a huge spike in their production. But in 2018 with the Falcons, because they didn't really have the offensive line play, particularly on the interior, to allow that to happen, you saw the struggles that Ryan Schrader also had, who was a big part of their success running the football. That led to the, the running game not working. And then so what happened with Sark, I think, was he basically was like, look, you know, our running game stinks. <laughs> so <laughs> we're just going to throw the ball. And we can throw the ball really effectively. And that got the offense, you know, quote, unquote, out of balance. And Dan Quinn wanting to be a balanced guy. I think the real issue that led to Sark's dismissal wasn't that the Falcons offense was bad or anything. It was more they, didn't, they weren't as balanced. They were dead last in the NFL that year mm-hmm. in terms of how often they ran the football. And I think a big thing that Dan Quinn wanted was like, let me get the same passing game, but let's get somebody who can establish the run, so to speak. And uh, that leads to questions over whether Dirk Cutter was maybe the right guy to hire, if that's what your desire was. <laughs> but I think, you know, with, with Sark now in hindsight, we look back at it and it was like, Hey, it wasn't that bad. You know, <laughs> cause yeah. the passing game was, you know, like a top five sort of passing game and the running game was not very good. But as many people know, you know, if you're going to be good at one thing in this league, it's probably best to be good at passing. You know, obviously in an ideal world, you're both a good passing team and a good running team because being good at two things is better than one. But if, you know, if you have to sort of have to choose one thing to be good at, most evidence and most data suggests that being the, you know, most effective passing team is going to lead to a lot more success in the NFL than being uh, the most effective running team. But um, that's kind of where it it ended with Sark. And, you know, I think the Falcons were justified with moving on. I think really where it went astray was with the decision to replace uh, him with Dirk Cutter. Yeah. And that brings us full circle. Uh, Boy, I, you, you segued that perfectly for me. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Look, I, you would think I'd do a daily podcast or something. Yeah, I know. It's a fantastic daily podcast at that. Um, the, the, the Falcons did ultimately bring back Dirt Cutter. And we've seen, you know, you and I have seen it on, on Twitter this week. There's some chatter about, uh, you know, what actually happened in that, uh, that time frame. There was some talk that the Falcons were interested in Gary Kubiak and that he was also interested back. I think Jeff Schultz intimated as much. Um, he also intimated that, you know, the Falcons wanted to quote unquote, keep Matt Ryan happy um, and bring in an offensive coordinator that he was familiar with. And that may have ultimately led them to bring uh, Dirk Cutter back. And I don't know that we'll know the full story of that. And I feel like it's, uh, somewhat irrelevant to the conversation because ultimately we're, we didn't get Kubiak. We're going to be moving on from Cutter. Uh, oh, heaven help us. We will be moving on from Cutter. Um, but do you feel like if, if I saw a lot of people say, if we were going to move on from Sarkeesian, it made sense to go to someone like Kubiak because he did have a history to your point of establishing running games uh, in, in his past as an OC and as a head coach. Do you feel like Kubiak was maybe the right guy, even if they didn't bring him in? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, if you wanted to run the Shanahan style of offense, probably the second best option besides Kyle Shanahan arguably was Gary Kubiak because the person who Kyle Shanahan got his career started with uh, running his offense was Gary Kubiak when he was in Houston. So they, you know, they run pretty much, I think Shanahan runs it better than Kubiak, but they run pretty much the same principles offense. It's pretty much the same thing. So 
it, I think the argument is definitely makes a lot of sense that if your issue was Sark wasn't doing enough of the established to run um, Shanahan stuff and you wanted to move on from it, you wanted to find someone who could do similar things in the passing game, but also sort of bring that balance in the run game. Gary Kubiak was the best option. And, you know, you didn't necessarily ask me this, but like my theory always has been sort of that they wanted Gary Kubiak, the Broncos blocked that higher, the Falcons quickly moved on to a plan B. I think that they wanted someone who had head coaching experience that because Dan Quinn was going to call the defense, there was the possibility that Dan Quinn would get so caught up in calling the defense and the game planning and all that sort of thing that he would neglect the offense uh, and be a head coach there. And so having someone who's an offensive coordinator that has that sort of experience of sort of being that CEO of managing things Mm -hmm. and managing a coaching staff, I think they wanted that in um, Dirk Cutter. And that's why I think they they interviewed people like Gary Kubiak, Dirk Cutter, Mike Malarkey, uh, you know, he wound up being the tight ends coach, but maybe he was in the mix for offensive coordinator. I've never seen that confirmed anywhere, but I assume he was. And Adam Gase uh, was the other candidate. The yeah. fifth candidate was not a head coach, uh, and that was Daryl Bevel. And he wound up going to Detroit. He was the offensive coordinator for many years in Seattle. He was the offensive coordinator prior to that in Minnesota during sort of the peak of Adrian Peterson's career. Mm-hmm. And I think with Bevel, you know, in terms of a plan B, if Kubiak was your plan A, you know, I think hindsight confirms this, but I thought this at the time that given what you wanted in your offense, I think Bevel checked all the boxes, but he just didn't have that box checked where he was, had that quote unquote CEO experience. And I think, you know, going back to sort of the idea of making Matt Ryan comfortable, which as you say, has been a topic of conversation. I do think, and at the time, I think a lot of us bought into this theory, or at least were optimistic that maybe this theory wound up being true. We've seen the last couple of years with the coaching changes, a regression in Matt Ryan in year one. And so the idea was bringing in a brand new offensive coordinator that's never worked with Matt Ryan versus Dirk Cutter, you know, someone like a Daryl Bevel versus Dirk Cutter, the argument would be that because of that familiarity that Dirk Cutter has with Matt Ryan and Julio Jones and some other pieces on this Falcons offense, as well as, you know, coaching across from them in Tampa Bay. And so being a lot more familiar with who they have on their team, at least in theory, that would lead to a less, less of a regression in Matt Ryan in that first year than it would be with somebody who's completely brand new and has to sort of figure it out as they go. And so I think those are the reasons why the Falcons ultimately chose Dirk Cutter over someone like a Daryl Bevel. I think, you know, obviously in hindsight, I think not to say Daryl Bevel would magically have fixed the Falcons offense, but I think we'd probably be in a better place right now had the Falcons, you know, done what I think would have been the right move and and hired Daryl Bevel instead of Dirk Cutter. This is Advertiser Content, brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight we'll break down... We break down who will be cutting... Cut! What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys! It's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. 
It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snacket. We're talking about big time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to frito No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void wherever hip. Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. So here we are. Uh, 2019, obviously, Dirk Cutter came back. Um, and we heard, you know, coming in that he was going to, quote-unquote, run the Shanty offense. And that always seemed... Uh, incredibly optimistic to me because we had never seen Dirk Cutter uh, run the outside zone uh, in the running game. And uh, we never saw him, you know, really use, you know, West coast principles uh, in his time, not, not in the way that Shanahan did. Uh, And it it felt like they were trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Uh, And, you know, last year, the offense, again, it, it regressed, uh, and I think it regressed from 2018 pretty easily was, uh, you know, maybe Matt Ryan's rough, roughest start to a season since, you know, one of his first two years in the NFL. Uh, those first few games were just god awful. I think he had uh, a couple of games with multiple interceptions uh, to start off the season. And, uh, you know, the the whole idea that Cutter was going to prevent that from happening because there was familiarity was quickly <laughs> dispelled mm-hmm. in that first four or five games uh, that, you know, he was back. So in the games that we've seen now from 2019 until now, uh, what are some of the, the glaring tendencies with Cutter? Are they the same ones that they were in 2012 through 2014? Or do you think that there are new t- negative tendencies that maybe got introduced in the fact that the Falcons were trying to force him to run an offense that he wasn't familiar with? Um, I, I would say, you know, a lot of it's the same. I think he's generally, especially if you're comparing it to his time previously in Atlanta, he's done more incorporating play action passing, which is mm-hmm. a, a core sort of tenet of sort of the Shanahan style of offense. He's done more, you know, outside zone stuff, certainly than he did a year ago where he was basically a, non-existent in the Falcons offense. Mm-hmm. Um, they've at least tried. Uh, I think, you know, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I think it's like 25% of their runs uh, this year have been sort of outside zone staples like the stretch play and the crack toss play. And it's been effective. Um, you know, I weekly complain about they should <laughs> run it more, but, you know, if they did, what would I have to complain about? And, and <laughs> I wouldn't be me. Um, so I, I think a lot of it goes back to sort of the point I made earlier with some of the, the issues this offense has. And this has been something that people have talked about quite a bit. I've seen elsewhere, um, which is sort of these sort of vanilla route combinations, which goes back to what yeah. I said earlier, where it was just kind of like, okay, guys go get open. And you know what, what you talking about for those who may not be familiar with what, what I mean by that is, you know, oftentimes in the offense and I, this was, I only I first started noting this like a decade ago, watching the Patriots offense and being like, why can't we have that? Um, where you would basically <laughs> have certain receivers run one route, you know, route A, another receiver run route B, and essentially, you know, receiver A, um, you know, 
in Falcons case, most often Julio Jones, uh, it basically is pulling coverage away from receiver B. And so it creates these wide open windows where, you know, receiver B gets an easy completion. And, right. you know, for, for those who are unfamiliar with my uh, history with Muhammad Sinu, this was a frequent complaint of mine of why <laughs> Muhammad Sinu was overrated because a lot of his production was because Julio Jones creating space for him. Um, but, you know, that's a subject for another day. But this is, we're, we're slandering dirt cutter, one slander at a time. Exactly. But I think, you know, w- when you look at this offense, you see examples of that. I think prominently people look at sort of that goal line play uh, where Matt Ryan threw the interception and sort of just like, you know, simply – they asked their three guys against, you know, man coverage, hey, go get open. And I think that style of offense is not particularly effective in today's NFL, despite the fact that the Falcons do have some talented playmakers on their offense. It's just, it's not reliable because yeah. when you go up against particularly, you know, you can, you can get away with that quite a bit um, during the regular season, often when you face, you know, less than, um, good defenses because that's going to be a lot of your games against that, but that has a low ceiling um, when it comes to the quote unquote second season, which is in January in the postseason, because generally those teams that you're going to face are going to be teams that have corners that can hold their own against quality receivers. And, you know, I think Sark's struggles in that Philadelphia game is a perfect example of why that sort of fails and that was a big reason why the Falcons offense kind of stagnated in that Eagles game uh, back in, in 2017, because they were, he was just basically asking, Hey guys, go get open. And unfortunately for the Falcons guys weren't necessarily getting open. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes a bigger issue with Dirk Cutter because it's even more prevalent um, because he's not really utilizing some of the same concepts um, that were so successful uh, in the Shanahan offense, but you know, to Dirk Cutter's credit, if we can actually say something positive, he's at least made attempts this season. I think what's really been frustrating is I think you go back and you look at that Dallas game. I think that was a really good example of him basically running a variation of the Shanahan style of offense. And we saw that yep. be highly effective in that game. You saw the tight end throwback, which was basically non-existent in our offense for, you know, basically since Kyle Shanahan left and was very effective in 2016, you mm-hmm. saw, that was the game where they ran the most, you know, stretch plays and outside zone plays. I think they ran like 10 in that game um, on their running plays. And it, it seemed to work. And then in the subsequent weeks since then, you've, you've sort of seen a regression with Dirk Cutter going back to his staples of sort of just draw plays. And you've seen examples of this with, you know, I've joked on Twitter often the last couple of weeks is like whenever you see Todd Gurley bouncing a play outside, he's basically telling you, hey, Dirk, this is a bad play call. Because the the Falcons interior offensive line just is not built to basically win on the inside and and create that push that you need. They're Mm -hmm. smaller, quicker, athletic. They're more of those heat-seeking missiles type of guys that are good on the move, but not sort of in creating that push. And then you're seeing Dirk Cutter, I mean, Todd Gurley sort of bounce plays outside because there's no room up the middle um, for him. And you know, I don't know if that answers your question. I'm just going on litany of all the, the issues that I have. Oh, with Dirk Cutter's offense. But. Well, and I saw a conversation between you and uh, Dave Choate, the Falcoholic. Uh, and I think this is a, a point that it's an echo of 2013. And that is when Julio Jones got injured. And which was, I believe, after, you know, the Cowboys game. And he you know, was not, I don't, he didn't play in the Bears game. Um, and then obviously came out early uh, against the Panthers. And 
it reminded me so much of what happened in 2013 that once they lost Julio, uh, he, to the point you're making where they were using Julio to draw coverage away, to create easy opportunities for the other guys. Uh, it really seemed like, and I think this is true with a lot of people when you are, when you face a new situation, most people tend to go back to what they know the most. And for Dirk Cutter, you know, he's going to regress back to the offense that he is comfortable with, the offense that he has always called. Um, and I, I don't think it's any coincidence the past two weeks the Falcons' offense has struggled. And I think you were making this point as well, that it has struggled as soon as Julio went down. And this is – and I would argue that it's less forgivable than it has been in the past because I think Calvin Ridley is a much, much better receiver than uh, what we had in you know 2013 with a hobbled Roddy White and an aging Tony Gonzalez. Uh, and yet he, he seems to not be able to uh, – take advantage of the, the full suite of weapons when Julio is not available, when Julio is not on the field to, to pull, you know, a safety into coverage with the corner that uh, is lined up to him. Uh, so do you think that, again, that – let me add this. I think when it comes to the NFL, a lot of coordinators are going to lean heavily on the players to make plays. And that's fair. At this level, you've got, you know, tremendous talent. Uh, and you can go and ask Julio, go get open, and, and he has the capability to do that. I think the really good offensive coordinators will create opportunities for those guys to get open, whether they you know, have that ability or not. And I think that's why you saw in 2016, you saw guys all the way down uh, the roster getting involved. You know, and Aldrick Robinson, you know, catching uh, touchdown passes down the sideline, um, you know, the – as you mentioned, the, the tight end throwback, which uh, I was thrilled to see against the Cowboys. Good offensive coordinators create those opportunities. Um, do you think that Dirk is just extremely limited in his ability to create opportunities? You mentioned that goal line play. I'm actually literally watching it right now on my screen. I wish I could show it to you. And, and to your point, literally, it is three of the most – it's a hitch – um, an out or a corner route, a very lazy corner route, and then just a, a like a, a curl post. It's just like it's it's playground football level <laughs> drawn out plays. Um, do you think that that is one of Kirk's or Dirk's biggest issues? Is his inability to create openings, to create opportunities for guys further down the roster, as opposed to his tendency to lean heavily on the superstars that make their own opportunities? Yeah, I think I think that's a great point that you raise because oftentimes when we talk about these play callers and you know people get the idea that you know the the great play callers, the Shanahan's of the world or whoever the McVay's of the world are essentially taking high school players and turning them into superstars. That's not what they're doing, as right. you say. A lot of it is they're letting playmakers make plays, right? That's a lot of it. You know, you, mm-hmm. you take Robert Woods, you take Cooper Cup out of that Rams offense, it's not going to be as effective. You take Julio Jones out of the Falcons offense, it's not going to be as effective. I think what the really good play callers do is they understand how pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go back to that 2016 season with where guys like Alshon Robinson and Taylor Gabriel and Justin Hardy had, you know, very productive years, Levine Toilolo. It's not <laughs> about like, oh, these guys are great. It's just like, I know how to use you. If, if you're Alger Robinson, you're fast. So Alger Robinson, just run vertical routes, run a deep post. That's all I need you to do. Mm-hmm. And because you're fast and we're going to run plays that run a deep post, it's going to be effective because you can do your job. Um, you know, to a certain extent, you know, the Falcons had some success doing that with a player like Marvin Hall and why Marvin Hall was a quasi effective backup 
when Julio Jones was out of the lineup because they could do some of the same thing, the deep digs, the deep posts, the corner routes or whatever, you're fast. So run deep. That's what you do well. So we're going to ask you to run plays that ask you to do those things. We're not going to ask you to, you know, be Muhammad Sanu. We're not going to ask you to be Julio Jones. We're just going to ask you, you know, to run this specific play. And I think good play callers understand how pieces fit together and bad play callers don't. Um, I think with Dirk Cutter and some of the vanilla stuff going back to asking the playmakers to sort of just get open and make plays and the absence of Julio Jones, I do think, you know, without completely derailing the conversation and, and getting into Matt Ryan, this is something that I've noticed time and time again with Matt Ryan, that when he's not comfortable with the play calling, um, and this was to me a big reason why Matt Ryan struggled in 2015 when he was learning a brand new offense for really the first time in his NFL career mm-hmm. um, under Kyle Shanahan. Oftentimes that season watching the film, it was just like he's throwing it to Julio Jones because he's the only guy out there that he trusts. Right. right? And that was a big reason why I was you know, critical of, of Roddy White back then, because I was like, you know, Matt Ryan's telling us the film is telling us that Matt Ryan doesn't have the same level of confidence in Roddy White that he once did um, and, and why Roddy is kind of done at this point. Um, but it was, it was a lot, of, and that led to a lot of mistakes from Matt Ryan where he was kind of forcing throws to Julio Jones and his second option that year often was, you know, Devontae Freeman and a lot of his interceptions. I think I counted like 10 interceptions that were quarterback error, which was way more than what Matt Ryan used to do. You saw this in 2017 as well with the first year under Steve Sarkeesian where a lot of times he's waiting on uh, Julio Jones to get open. And yep. that's to the detriment of the offense. Um, you saw that last year, you, you, you know, and I think when you're uncomfortable with the offense and you don't have your quote unquote security blanket, like Julio Jones has been for Matt Ryan, it leads to him being playing a lot more erratic and playing with less confidence. And I think that's led to some of the struggles you saw this in the Carolina game where early in that throughout that game, oftentimes he was waiting for Calvin Ridley to get open because he's the other receiver that he actually trusts. Um, And, you know, it, you know, in that goal line play, why you know they had really one-on-one you know the not to turn this into a matt ryan conversation but like in that situation it's like the one time where you probably should have tried to stare down calvin ridley that was maybe the time that you should have done it but (laughs) i remember going back to 2019 at the end of the season when ridley was hurt and the falcons sort of moved julio jones into the slot and and featured him a lot more in the slot and it was just basically the julio jones show for those last three games of the season um and guys like christian blake and um Russell Gage, you know, Russell Gage made a couple of plays and Austin Hooper had a couple of plays, but it was just basically Matt Ryan's just like, I'm throwing it to Julio. I'm throwing it to Julio. And Julio, I think wound up averaging like 12 catches for like 150 yards over those last three games or something, something ridiculous like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, it, it's, it, it's an indicator. Like when you see Matt Ryan playing like this, I don't think it's necessarily a sign that Matt Ryan is, you know, is bad now. Although I do think there are some issues that Matt Ryan needs to clean up with this game. But again, maybe not, that's not, the topic we need to get into on today's episode. But I do think a lot of it is just, I'm not confident with what I'm being asked to do. And so at the end of the day, I'm just going to key in on my guy. I know Julio Jones is going to get open and not having that guy out there on the field, I think has led to a lot of the issues that we've seen with this offense struggling the last couple of games. Yeah. And to add on to that, and obviously, you know, the topic of conversation was Dirk, but I, I, I do think it's germane to, talk about what his play calling has done to Matt Ryan, because now, you know, as you have seen, the talk has turned to, um, 
you know, will the Falcons draft a quarterback? Uh, and you and I have talked about this offline. Um, and, you know, I, I can understand the conversation. Matt Ryan's 35. He'll be 36 next year. Certainly he is not getting any younger. Um, and the way he has played this year has made a lot of people question, uh, you know, whether or not he still has it. But I, I go back to the exact same point you've made. When Matt Ryan is confident in what he's doing, he throws with more velocity. He throws with more certainty. Uh, he gets the ball out on time. Uh, and he looks like a much better quarterback. Uh, I go back to the oh, – was it the Cowboys game? No, I think it was the Bears game. Um, when Calvin Ridley – I think it was the first play where uh, Calvin Ridley had run a sluggo. And if Ryan lets go of that ball soon enough, it's a touchdown. Like Ridley had – clearly beaten his guy he had burned him and you could tell there was this hesitation just a you know a a, a slight pause from ryan and he ended up throwing a pass that you know people blamed ridley for not catching it but that play broke down not because of ridley broke down when ryan hesitated on the initial throw on the sluggo and it it that to me was a wake-up moment where i said he's not confident he is not confident in what he's doing in this offense. And um, to your point, and I think it's dead on, whatever Dirk is doing from a play-calling standpoint, whatever he's doing with the talent, um, he does not have Matt Ryan's full confidence right now. And, uh, you know, that maybe it's also the other guys on the field uh, contributing to that, you know, when he's having to throw it to guys like Zacchaeus, uh, and Christian Blake, you know, clearly they're a downgrade from uh, Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley. But I, I still go back to the, the fact that if your quarterback is confident with what you're doing, you, you can still get some productivity out of those guys further down the roster. We saw it. We saw it in 2016 with, uh, you know, the, the, even guys like Andre Roberts were getting involved in the offense. I mean, just up and down the roster, just those guys getting, you know, their shots and being used properly. Um, so, no, I, I think your point in bringing up what we're seeing from Matt Ryan, I think that is a direct pointer back to Dirk Cutter. Um, because in my mind, it is on the offensive coordinator to create that confidence in what they're doing. And you've, you've said it many times, and I think it's the, one of the strongest points you make repeatedly on Twitter uh, that people, frankly, just need to listen to you is – Matt Ryan is telling you what he sees and what he's confident in by the plays he's choosing to make. Um, And if he looks like he's skittish and he looks like he is not confident throwing the ball, he is telling you he is, that is indictment of what is he's being asked to do on the field. Um, And I think that is a a direct implication of Dirk Cutter. Um, So Aaron, let me ask you this to, to wrap up the podcast it's almost a certainty at this point that Dirk Cutter will be gone. I cannot envision a scenario where he is kept after the season that they force him onto a new coaching staff. Um, if you are thinking about the, the redesign for the Falcons going forward uh, with the weapons you have, knowing the age of Matt Ryan and, and Julio Jones and, and Calvin Ridley and what you've got, because I, this is to me, the big question. Um, do you, look towards bringing in an offensive coordinator who can take advantage of those weapons now and, and continue to win um, going into 2021, 2022, 2023, or do you go nuclear option and think about going young and trying to draft a quarterback? Uh, do you feel like 
there's enough from a talent standpoint for a new coach to come in and win win immediately, at least from the offensive standpoint. Yeah, I, I do. I th- I think you know I think for the most part the Falcons' offense is built to be much better than what it is. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to sit here and say that we're going to go toe to toe against the Chiefs' offense and and match them point for point or anything like that. But I do think this offense is more than capable of being able to put up 24, 27, 30 points pretty much on a consistent weekly basis with the talent that they have already assembled with maybe a couple of tweaks here and there. Mm-hmm. I think sort of with the idea of as is, if if we're going to you know take a lot of these pieces with players like Matt Ryan and um, Keith Smith and... Uh, Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, Russell Gage, Hayden Hurst, Jake Matthews, Alex, not Alex Mack, uh, Matt Hennessy, Chris Lindstrom, uh, Kayla McGarry, and Matt Gunn, all these guys that are under contract this year and possibly even next year. You know, you have a couple of holes that you got to shore up, maybe another guard uh, potentially replacing Todd Gurley uh, at the running back position if you want a, another young running back feature back with, with sort of fresh legs there. But I think you kind of build an offense. I, I think we're, we're this personnel group is is really tailored towards being that sort of Shanahan style offense. And I think if you bring in an offensive coordinator that understands the value of outside zone schemes and, and is willing to sort of build an offense around that outside zone scheme and, you know, do a lot of the things that the Falcons have done in the past, as well as other teams have done in the past, which is look, maybe Matt Ryan isn't, the same player that he was. Maybe he's not the guy that can drop back and throw the ball 40 times a game and win like he was at the peak of his powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we need to be even more of a balanced offense. Um, and if we're going to do that, then we probably need to have a running game that can guide that. And we've seen that with, you know, Minnesota with Gary Kubiak and Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins is not an elite quarterback. He's a good quarterback. He's an efficient quarterback, but they've built an offense, you know, around Dalvin Cook in that running game. And, in, in a, you see it with Tennessee, as I mentioned, with, with Derrick Henry. Um, you saw it in, in L.A. with Todd Gurley in, in his early years, mm-hmm. uh, not to discredit, you know, Sean McVay's ability to, to dial up uh, valuable passes. Um, you see it with San Francisco. So I feel like the Shanahan style of offense still works and an offense coordinator comes in that or a head coach with that sort of background comes in understanding that offense. And I, I certainly think there are plenty of candidates out there that do have sort of that background. You have Arthur Smith in Tennessee, Eric B in, in Kansas city also has a, a similar background because Andy Reid's always been uh, a proponent of, you know, zone blocking uh, over there with the sort of the, the bells and whistles that comes with having Patrick Mahomes and and Tyreek Hill um, in addition to that. So I do think there are plenty of candidates that will at least fundamentally do a better job than what the Falcons coaching staff is currently doing in terms of implementing that style of scheme. And you can make it work with Matt Ryan. Are you going to get Matt Ryan, MVP Matt Ryan? You know, probably not. Like, I mean, probably there was no scenario where you're going to get Matt Ryan producing at that level. Uh, Again, even if, you know, Shanahan has stuck around uh, all the time, that was just kind of an outlier historic season that is very unlikely to be reproduced uh, by anybody uh, twice in, in their career. Um, but I do think you can get a lot more production from this offense to the point that at least it can get back to being more of that consistent offense that can get you in the playoff mix, can get you to eight wins, nine wins, and a six seed or a seven seed or something like that. If, you know, in addition to that, you can get at least competent 
defensive play, which, you know, probably is the bigger question right now sure. for this Falcon team. But this, you know, as we know, this offense has always been sort of the foundation, been the backbone of this team. Their success has always been tied to their offense. So I, I feel like a new coach could come in certainly feeling like I can work with this. I can get this unit playing better. I don't have to blow it up. But at the same time, I think the the big question as we get further in the season is the less this team wins, um, the more likely it is that someone's going to come in and want to blow this thing up. That if this team is in a position by the end of the season with a top three, top four pick, then they're going to feel compelled, I think, somewhat um, to want to, you know, pull the trigger on one of these young quarterbacks. And if you're drafting a quarterback that high, you know, that's at best your best case scenario for Matt Ryan is that he's your bridge for one year. And then you basically punt him uh, after that point when, when you can, more easily get out of his contract at that point in time. Um, but if they are able to figure some things out and, and rattle off a couple of wins, much to the chagrin, I think of tankers everywhere um, <laughs> and be out of the position to take a young quarterback, then, you know, they'll have to, that will sort of force their hand to a certain extent uh, where they won't be able to get one of these elite quarterbacks and may have to settle. If you want to say that for maybe who, whoever is the fourth guy uh, or fifth guy behind players like Trevor Lawrence and Trey Lance and, and Justin Fields uh, in potentially round two to, and that will buy Matt Ryan a little bit more time. So it's definitely in Matt Ryan's best interest that he plays better as the right. season uh, <laughs> wears on uh, and, and actually, you know, disappoints fans and, and, or some fans, I should say, not all fans, uh, some fans and actually start winning a couple of games and, and knock the Falcons out of their draft position. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, you and I share such a similar perspective on that. Um, and honestly, you know, just to, to uh, cross that T off, uh, these, I think fans need to remember, these players are not going to tank because, quite frankly, many of them are auditioning for a job either next year with the Falcons or with another team. And they want to put good performance on tape, regardless of what it means for the franchise from a draft standpoint. I can guarantee you those 53 guys on that roster do not care about the 2021 NFL draft for the Falcons. They don't. They do not care. What they care about is their paycheck and whether they're going to have a job next year. And if they tank all the way to 0-16, you may enjoy it, but it, it will actually potentially threaten many of those guys' paychecks and including the coaches. So any idea that this team is going to tank, you guys need to put it to bed. It just does not happen, at least not on purpose. So... Uh, Aaron, I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I feel like we could probably, as you mentioned, dive into a whole host of other topics like Matt Ryan, like Julio Jones. Um, but I, I think we've broken down Dirk and, and what he has meant to this franchise in all the negative ways <laughs> uh, pretty thoroughly. So I appreciate you coming on. Why don't you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you and what you have going on? Yeah, if, you, if you're looking for more Dirk Cutter slander, that's been uh, <laughs> bread and butter of the Locked On Falcons podcast since January of 2019. Uh, you know, if the podcast existed in probably October of 2013, you would have heard started hearing the Dirk Cutter slander because that's really where it started for me um, in terms of being like, this guy's not good. But if you want to check out more Dirk Cutter slander or topics like Matt Ryan and Julio Jones and what's going on with this team and all these things, Five days a week, Locked on Falcons on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now. And, of course, you can check me out being very snarky on Twitter, on game <laughs> days, and during the week 
uh, at Falcfans, F A L C F A N S. Absolutely. Uh, and guys, uh, in all seriousness, strong endorsement for Aaron's podcast. Uh, you won't hear that from me from, for a lot of people, but uh, he's one of the few people that um, I truly value his opinion. He, he puts a lot into it. Uh, he watches this game a lot. Uh, when he says something, I listen. Um, as for me, guys, you can find me on Twitter at FalcoholicDW. Updates for this podcast at FalcoholicPod. Of course, our articles daily at Falcoholic.com. So for Aaron Freeman of the Locked On Falcons podcast, this is David Walker. Thank you guys for listening in. We'll talk with you next time.